Good morning. We are looking this morning at a continuation of the book of Matthew, and we are in the section of the genealogy of uh, Jesus Christ. So I have this chart up here, if you can make any sense of it. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, except it's a genealogy uh, relationship kind of a chart. If you have studied or looked into your family tree, uh, some of you said last week that you have at least dabbled in it. Um, it's quite intriguing. Uh, but as most people who dig into their family tree a little will tell you, it can become quite addicting. And uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of uh, very funny um, pictures online of people who you know, are clearly up well past midnight with bleary-eyed and just one more family member to follow, you know, and it's, it's very addicting. And it can become quite expensive. Um, there are many websites that you can join that it costs you a monthly subscription fee. Uh, many people go beyond that and they're not satisfied with what they find online and they literally make trips around the world to try to dig in deeper and find... Um, uh, you know, hidden treasures in church records or in uh, local uh, archives that have not yet, uh, they, they, they can't find online. And uh, so it can become quite expensive. I have relatives that, <laughs> that write to me on a fairly regular basis until I've had to just say, look, please stop writing to me. Um, why aren't you still online? Why aren't you still digging around? Why, why haven't you added anything? I said, it's, it's not that important to me. Um, I have relatives that work on genealogy every single day and have done so for years. It's their life. I mean, they have become uh, addicted to it and it's very, very expensive. Was it Mark Twain, Luke, was it Mark Twain who said, why waste your money looking up your family tree? Just go into politics, and your opponents will do it for you. <laughs> and it's true. So this morning we are looking at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the first 17 verses of Matthew 1 last Sunday, and we didn't cover every single person, and we don't intend to today. We looked at four women in particular, four women who in many ways you would not think belonged in the um, genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And yet, the grace of God reached out to the, the, the worst, the least, the lowest, and uh, he saved them and brought them into his own family, literally, but also uh, he brought them into his family spiritually. Um, there's one more woman we want to consider today. But before we do that, I, I want you to notice, just take out your Bible and uh, look at Matthew chapter 1 for just a second. And if you look at the, there's a key word that keeps appearing and reappearing in this uh, passage. And so it starts at um, verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah, and so on. And you see this word, begot, 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 begot. And it appears uh, somewhere around 39 times, if my count is correct. And the word begot has to do with the idea of 
procreate. Abraham procreated with his wife, and as a result, uh, they had Isaac. Isaac came as a result of that procreation. Um, the one who begot is the father, and the one who is begotten is the son. But the pattern is broken once we get to verse 16. And so let's go down to verse 16 and see this. And Jacob begot Joseph, so that's still the same, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice it does not say Joseph begot Jesus. And it says that for a reason. It's because Jesus was not begotten from Joseph. He is not the uh, physical descendant of Joseph, or the Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And so we pause at this part of the genealogy for an explanation of how this is possible. We have the birth of a child, and yet he has no human father. How is that possible? So let's read verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, and, and that literally means before they had a sexual relationship, uh, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. We, would, we use the term today engaged. Uh, she was in an engagement relationship with Joseph. In that time, engagement was more, was, was a closer legal attachment than we make it today. Many people get engaged and the next day they get unengaged or they get engaged for a period of time and they say, yeah, this is really not working out and they end the engagement. And there's no legal repercussions from that. It's just basically you say, you know, nice knowing you, see you later, bye. I mean, it might be a little more in depth than that, hopefully it is, but um, it can be that simple. There's no legal process by which you have to break your engagement. But in this time, there was a legal attachment um, that was much stronger than it is today. 
And so if I was to propose to my wife and say, I would like to marry you, we actually entered into a legal agreement. Now, that kind of takes the romance away from it. But when you marry and you say, you know, do you take this man to be your husband? And you say, I do. As romantic as that is, that is actually a legal agreement. You are legally binding yourself to that person. And so is the man to uh, his wife. But in this day, it was actually um, more of that sort of legal agreement or legal binding agreement at engagement. So when you said, I am proposing to you to marry me, and, and you say yes, you have actually entered into a legal agreement. In um, John chapter 14, there's a wonderful picture of the Lord leaving and, and going. He says, you know, um, I am going to go to heaven. I'm going to build a house for you. And it really illustrates what often took place in Israel at that time, where a man would become engaged to a woman, and then he would leave her. She would go back and live with her mother and father, and he would go off to whatever town he was from, and he would begin the process of building a house. So that at some future date, whenever he was finished building this house, he would come back with all of his uh, groomsmen, and he would come and take her away. They would go to a wedding celebration, and they would marry. And she had to be ready at any given time for this to take place. How would you like that, Sharon? <laughs> All right, so you have a date. The woman didn't. And it's a beautiful illustration of what the Lord has done for us. We have been betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his bride, expecting him to come back at any time and call us home to be with him forever. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour that he's coming back. But when he comes, are we ready? Are we ready and clothed and, and waiting for the coming of the Lord? And many, many of the parables in the scripture actually illustrate this process that took place in Israel. So Joseph and Mary were engaged legally, and the only way to separate from each other would be by a, something similar to a certificate of divorce. He would have to legally break the engagement and... Um, that's what would have to happen if they were going to break up. Now, the idea here, of course, is that while the man goes away to build the house, he is working hard to prepare a place for her, that where she is, where he is, there she may be also. Sound familiar, right, to uh, John 14. The expectation is that he will remain faithful that he will not take up with another woman, he will not be unfaithful to her during that engagement period. But the, all, the other side is also true. The, the expectation is that she, living with her parents in their home, she will also remain faithful to him. She will not say, hey, you know what, he's gonna take at least a year. You know, I know how this guy builds. And uh, it's gonna take a while. And I, you know, I, I need a man. And so I'm going to be unfaithful. But the expectation is that she would wait patiently with expectation and be ready at any time and remain faithful to him. Back in uh, this day, Joseph and Mary believed in waiting until marriage before having a sexual relationship, abstaining. And they kept God's law, and they kept themselves pure for each other. 
And the scripture says that before they came together, that's what it says. So that is before they were married, before they had had sexual relationships, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And so you can imagine, the scripture doesn't actually tell us when Joseph heard this news. I'm going to give you an explanation of what I think happened. Um, but it doesn't say when. But can you imagine him hearing the news that the one that he was expecting to remain faithful for him was now pregnant? Um, must have been quite a shock for him to hear. If we go over to the Gospel of Luke, we'll find a fuller explanation of what took place. So Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. If you remember, the story picks up at a place where um, um, Mary's aunt Elizabeth, she's pregnant with a miracle baby. She was too old to have children, and yet the Lord uh, opened her womb. She has now been um, pregnant for six months, and she has, she's going to give birth to the, the person who will become John the Baptist. Um, now in verse 26, now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that is, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And she is making it very plain. The scripture is actually making it very plain earlier on that he came to the house of a virgin, says it twice, and then she says, I do not know, or I have not known a man. I have not had a sexual relationship. How is it possible that I could bear a child, bear a son? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste, to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And then if you go down to verse 56, it says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So the Spirit of God is very careful in recording this event uh, to note that Mary was a virgin, that she remained a virgin until the birth of Jesus. And so it says in Matthew 1.25, And Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, that she, she never had any more children, she was a virgin for her entire life, and uh, that she never had relations with Joseph, and that she never had any other children. But that is not true. In fact, the scripture here points out that they didn't know each other, they didn't have sexual relationships until after the birth of Jesus. So clearly, uh, the perpetual virginity is just a made-up story. That is not true, and it's certainly not taught in the scripture. And there are at least eight other scriptures indicating that Joseph and Mary had other children. What's the big deal about her being a virgin? What's the big deal about Joseph not being the biological father? What's all the hoopla about this whole thing? Why does it even matter? And the answer to these two questions really is the key to understanding how God brought about your salvation. How could God save you? And without the virgin birth, it couldn't happen. And so it's really a key uh, uh, doctrinal uh, foundation for salvation. So let's start with Joseph, or any man for that matter. It doesn't have to be Joseph, any man. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, Adam became something that he wasn't before. Did you know that? Adam became something that he wasn't before he sinned. What did he become? A sinner. <laughs> That's what he became. Uh, he became a sinner. And you and I were in Adam when he took of the fruit and disobeyed God. You say, you say well, I wasn't there. Well, you were. You were there in Adam. And Adam was acting as the federal head or as your representative there in the garden. He was really your substitute there in the Garden of Eden. What he did, you did. What he ate, you ate. What happened to him happened to you. And many, many centuries later, you were born. And here's where your genealogy comes into play in this whole story. Your line can be traced back to your father, and then to your grandfather, and then to your great-grandfather. And most of us lose track about at that point. Many of you can name maybe up to your great-grandfather, and that's about it. Everybody else is kind of a blur. But I can tell you uh, with, with uh, absolute certainty that I can trace you back to at least one of three fathers. Okay, the three fathers would be the sons of who? Noah. And so really I could go bypass them and just say, you're a relative of Noah. All of us have come from the line of Noah. 
So we can start there. I can go back that far. But I can even go further back because I know historically where Noah came from, and he came from Adam. And so all of us can trace our roots back to Noah, and Noah can trace his roots back to Adam. You can, we can trace all of our roots back to Adam. You are a son and, or a daughter of Adam. And as a result, <clears throat> you possess the family resemblance of your father. I remember years ago, uh, I forget which one of our children was born. It could have been uh, Daniel. And Howard looked at him and he goes, yep, another Robertson. <laughs> I said, he bears the family resemblance. He said, they all look the same. <laughs> and I can look at, at you, and if I know some of your relatives, I go, yeah, there's a family resemblance. I can see your mother or your father or your sister or your brother in your resemblance. And you resemble your father, Adam. I don't know if you do physically, but to some degree you do. But I do know that you resemble your father in the fact that you're a sinner. Because Adam sinned, you became a sinner. You are a sinner by nature. That means that the, your sin nature passed from Adam through the multiple generations to your father and then to you. And then um, you're also a sinner by practice. That's another whole story. The fact of the matter is this. When you were born, you were born a sinner. You were born under condemnation. You were born separated from God. You were actually born dead. And, and death in this case is separation from God. Death always means separation, either physical death where your soul and spirit are separated from the body or spiritual death where you are living physically but you're living a life apart from God. And then the second death the scripture talks about is when you die physically and you are separated from God for all eternity. That's called the second death. It's, there's no end to that. Uh, it's separation from God for all eternity. The sin nature passed on through the seed of the man. And since we are all conceived by the seed of a man, sorry, we're all sinners. It's bad news. And I can't help it, but that's the way it is. Those are the facts. And because we are sinners, we are under condemna the condemnation of death, eternal separation from God. Romans tells us this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sin. It's like this terrible infection that has spread through all of mankind, and, they're, and we're all sick. We're all sinners. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The point that I'm making from that passage is that is the death and we're going to die. If every human being is born a sinner, and if every sinner is under condemnation, then every single man, woman, and child must pay the death penalty for their sin. Those are the facts. For the wages of sin is death. If there could be a substitute, one who could die in our place, then he could not be a sinner or else he would have to pay for his own sins. So if, a, if there's a person who is born 
who could die for another, who could be our substitute, he has to be sinless. Otherwise, he would, be, he would have to pay for his own sins. We know from Scripture and from the history of the Old Testament that the payment for sin, of a, for, so a human being sins, the payment for that sin is the life of a human being. And we know that because for centuries, the Jews offered sacrifices, bulls and goats, uh, uh, lambs, and they offered these sacrifices, and the scripture tells us, and it never took away sin. So the thousands, perhaps millions of lambs that were slain never had the satisfying effect of sins completely forgiven and gone. Never happened. All through the centuries of the Old Testament. And the blood of bulls and goats and, and the ashes of a hammer does nothing to take away the sin. These are sacrifices that simply covered over the sin issue until that perfect substitute, that perfect sacrifice uh, was found. They were not adequate substitutionary offerings to take away sin. But if there is a substitute, the substitute himself must be sinless. Therefore, he could not descend from the seed of Adam. He could not be one of the begotten ones. So Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, all those guys are begotten, begotten, begotten. Unfortunately, they could not be our substitute. And if you look at the entire human race, you can trace every single human being back to their father. They're begotten. And as a result, they cannot be the substitute. If he were merely human, I would venture to say that if he was perfect and was not born as a result of coming through Adam's race, that if he were human, he could only die for one other, for one other person. If he was perfect himself, he could only die for one other person. Why do I say that? Because the scripture says life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. You can't die for multiple people. You can only die for one other. And if he could only die for one other human being, who would he pick? If you could find a substitute like this, who would he pick? Would he pick you? Would he pick me? Who would he choose? The best among us or the worst among us? There are billions of people on earth today, and there have been billions before this. Who among the multiplied billions would he choose to save if there was only one life to save? <laughs> Guarantee it wouldn't be mine. Whose life would be spared? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that sin has corrupted the entire human race and that all of us are in need of salvation. Every single one of us need a savior. Every single one of us needs a substitute to stand in our place and take the punishment for us. And since there are billions of humans living on earth and billions before us, in order to save all sinners, the life value of the substitute would have to be infinite. And the only life like that is God's. The substitute has to be fully human or else he can't stand in our place. And he has to be fully God or 
for the value of that infinite life. And you know, really when you stop and think about it, if you heard this for the very first time, it creates quite a dilemma for the human race. For there is no human being who was ever born except through the seed of a man and was himself a man, a sinner by nature. Every single human being who has ever been born was born that way, except one. And the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold that an event would take place in history that would forever answer this dilemma. In Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to all of the questions that we've been asking this morning. It says here in this passage in Isaiah, his name is Emmanuel. And in the New Testament, we're told the interpretation of that, which means God with us. Mary became pregnant through a miraculous act of the Holy Spirit. There was no man involved. She remained a virgin. It was Dr. Luke who said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And through this miraculous conception, God really did an end run around the human race uh, and the sin issue by avoiding man's seed altogether. God placed his son in the womb of Mary through a miraculous event. And uh, he was a human being. Jesus Christ had no biological father, and therefore he did not inherit the sin nature that comes through Adam's seed. He bypassed it altogether. And yet he was fully human, developing in Mary's womb. And the Bible says that he is God with us. God became a man and yet remained God in every way. And we have the wonder of a human being who was born without sin and whose life is of infinite value. The question is no longer, is there a substitute who can stand in my place and die for my sins and for the sins of the world? We have found that substitute, and his name is Jesus. He is a perfect substitute. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the perfect substitute, the one who can stand in my place and the one who can stand uh, in your place and die for us. So the next most important question isn't who is he or is there a substitute? The question now is, is he willing to die in our place? That's the question. Because he could have been born. He could have come into this world. He could have lived a perfect life and said, you know what? They're just not worth it. And he could have gone back to heaven and walked away. Obviously, that was not the plan of God. That was not the purpose of God. And Jesus Christ came to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is demonstrated in this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his Son on a rescue mission. And that rescue mission was for you. 
That rescue mission was to save you from your sins and to save you from the condemnation that you were under. That was why he came. And so the answer is given by the angel who speaks to Joseph. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. So let's go back to verse 18. Verse 18 says, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Remember Mary had been uh, with her aunt Elizabeth for about three months. So Joseph and Mary were engaged. The legal proceedings had already started. Joseph was somewhere building a house or building something for her, getting ready for the, the wedding date. Mary was notified that she was going to be the mother of the Christ child, that she would become pregnant. And she became pregnant and she left and went to visit um, her aunt Elizabeth for three months. So she was gone. There was that separation. They were, they were not together. And there was no internet. There was no uh, Facebook. There was no texting back and forth. Um, I don't think Joseph knew at all what was going on. He just knew she had left. It seems that it is not until she returned to Nazareth that Joseph was informed that she was pregnant. Now you can imagine, guys, that you're engaged to this woman and you now find out that she's three months pregnant and you know you have not had sex with her. So what happened? And if Mary told him the story about the angel visiting him and telling her that she would be the mother of the Christ child, I'm sure his head was spinning. Because something like this had never happened in the history of the world, in the history of the human race. The only known way of becoming pregnant was through relationships with a man. That was it, that's all they knew. And here she is, pregnant. And his head must have been spinning. And in the next few verses, we actually see the tension that is taking place in Joseph's heart. It's very clear to me from this next section that Joseph loved Mary, no question about it. He loved Mary. But as far as he could tell, she was no longer a virgin. She must have been unfaithful to him. How else could she have become pregnant? And the, Mo the Mosaic law allowed him to actually call for the maximum penalty, which would have been to take her and make a public example of her and stone her to death for her unfaithfulness, for adultery, or for fornication in this case. She could have been stoned to death. An example of this law is found in Deuteronomy. 22, verses 23 and 24. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. That could have happened. We read in verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, okay, so here's the just man part of it. He's a righteous man. A righteous man says, look, the law demands the death of this woman. The law demands it. It's, 
what do I do? Being a just man, and yet it says, and not wanting to make her a public example. There's the love of Joseph there, looking at his bride-to-be and saying, the law calls for death, and yet my love for you impels me to, uh, to spare you from this public spectacle and uh, to keep you alive. No matter what you've done to me, no matter how you've hurt me in this event, I still love you that much that I want to spare you from this public spectacle. And it says, not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph, a just man wanting to follow the law, but Joseph, a, a man who loved Mary and did not want to humiliate her publicly. And you can almost see or hear the torment that is going on in his mind as he's going through this. And he reasoned that a private divorce proceeding would just make it all go away. It doesn't appear that he was angry, and he's certainly not retaliatory uh, towards her, but he was about to lose the woman that he loves. And yet he knew that the child that she carried was not his. The tension, the heartache that he must have felt as he pondered what to do. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he goes on to, to quote from the uh, prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so Joseph awoke from the the vision, and he did exactly as he was told. The angel was sent to Joseph in this dream to, uh, from God to tell Joseph that Mary had not been unfaithful to him. And the angel told Joseph that Mary, none other than his Mary, was the person Isaiah prophesied about. And he confirms that Mary was and remained a virgin. She did not have sexual relations with any man. And he explained that a miracle had taken place. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God placed Jesus in the womb as a seed, Jesus in the womb of Mary to develop normally as a human being. And says, um, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What unexpected news, and boy, what marvelous news. What a, what a sigh of relief he must have had hearing this from the angel. Mary was not guilty of sexual sins. No, in fact, she was favored of God to be the mother of the Messiah, the Lord, our Savior, Emmanuel. God had taken up residence within Mary's womb. And she would be most blessed among women. What a radical shift of thinking must have taken place in Joseph's mind that day. And the news must have struck him very deeply as well because he was engaged to be married to Mary. And if she was going to bear God's son, he would be the adopted father 
to raise the Son of God. Wow, that's a lot to take in in one day. One conversation. And in this conversation, the angel provides the two names of this baby which answer all of the questions that we have raised this morning. The first name is given from Isaiah's prophecy, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I don't know if you have studied all of the New Testament scriptures, but can you name a verse in the New Testament where that name was used of Jesus, where his name was actually called Emmanuel? It's not there. You say, well, why did they say his name shall be Emmanuel? Well, the explanation is found in the explanation of the meaning of the name, that is, God with us. The translation of the name holds the key. Who was he? He was none other than God dwelling with us. Was Jesus who dwelt among us ever called God? Oh, yes, he was. The Bible tells us that he is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in our midst. Jesus is Emmanuel. And so as we look back at what we said at the beginning, that unless there is a substitute, and unless the value of this substitute is of inf the life is of infinite value, who would he choose to save? For he could only choose one. But if his life is of infinite value, then the infinite value of that life offered for us extends to the whole world. The whole world can be saved if they simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. He is God with us. And th this answers the most important question, which is why did God, or, or how did God bypass the sin nature that comes by conception through the seed of man? The answer is that that Holy One who knew no sin became a man. And God did an end run around the sin nature by coming to earth himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through the virgin birth. The second name that uh, is given answers the next important question. If there was a man who had a life value of infinite worth, would he be willing to suffer and take our place and suffer the death that we deserved in order to bring us back to God? Would anyone suffer, or would he suffer as payment for our sin? And the angel told Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus. That means Jehovah saves, or Jehovah is salvation. That tells us what God can do. God can save, and only God can save, but the angel said so much more. He told Joseph what Jesus would do. It says, for he will save his people from their sins. Is he willing? Yes, he's willing. And that is why he came. And we know that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And he paid the price, not just for my sins, not just for your sins, but for the sins of the world. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. The God-man had been born, and the one who knew no sin and had no sin and in whom there was no sin was born as the only one who could bear the sins of the world. 
being without sin, he died, or he could die for the sins of others. Being a man, he could die for mankind. And being the infinite God, he could die for infinite number of sinners. And so that's good news this morning. If you don't already know him, I can tell you with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. And his life is of an infinite value, a life that was accepted by God as substitutionary payment for your sins. The value of his life is immeasurable. So as we celebrate Christmas in July today, we come to worship as the wise men did at his feet. Jesus Christ came to this world to suffer and to bleed and to die for you, to pay for your sins penalty in full. And I want to say this to you. We just heard this morning, um, some of you heard it a little, uh, a little while ago this, week, or this past week, that one who sat among us just a few weeks ago is now dead, is now in the presence of the Lord. And the question I have for you this morning, when will you die? Noah, Noah had asked the question this morning. We don't know if the Lord is coming back this week. We don't know if you'll take your last breath this week. Are you ready to meet the Lord? And have you accepted his wonderful gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you? For he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. We call you this morning, Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The fact that you came to this world bypassing the sin nature, living a holy, blameless life without sin, and dying as our perfect sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we worship you and praise you that you, God, dwelt among us. And we worship you with the name Jesus. Jehovah saves, and Lord, what a salvation it is that you would look upon us and spare us from an eternity in hell and save us and make us kings and priests to our God, make us children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, what a salvation this is. And we thank you for it in your own precious name. Amen.